0: Matthew chapter 13, Jesus offers two parables about the nation of God, that is the kingdom which is entering into the world, uh, this kingdom which in so many ways uh, contradicts and stands in a blatant contrast to the kingdoms that we see all around us. Uh, and there is a, a common theme within these two parables, a common theme that they share, and it's simply this. The kingdom of God seems very small, tiny, and insignificant, and yet in time it will have a universal effect. And that's the theme that connects them together. And I, I think that that theme, that, that which is small, can create a universal effect, a butterfly effect, if you will, is found throughout history and throughout literature. I mean, many of the massive historical movements have taken place because something small got the ball rolling, got the avalanche started. You think, for example, about Nixon's Watergate scandal, which affected the whole country. It was originally discovered because of a piece of masking tape. In the Watergate Hotel, a security guard noticed that a lock was kept open by a small piece of masking tape, which made him ask questions, which made him then investigate which made him then discover that a burglary had taken place, which ousted a president, which changed a nation politically, even forever. Uh, The same thing happened with Fidel Castro. You may know that Fidel Castro originally had different plans. He tried out at one point for the baseball team that was known as the Washington Senators and was turned down. So he changed his interest from baseball to politics. And that had slight ramifications for the Western world. Uh, We see this in, in literature, though, too, that something small can have a nearly universal effect. You see it with Pandora's box, that all of the evil in the world, it was believed, was contained in one small jewelry box. It was opened, and then all of a sudden, all hell broke loose. The same thing occurred with jewelry yet again in Lord of the Rings, right? Where existence itself was held in the balance of a small hobbit who held an even smaller piece of jewelry. And we see the same theme in biblical literature, right? The fall itself was caused because there was a feeding frenzy in an orchard, right? That all of uh, human goodness began to collapse at that dark Edenic moment. And we see that theme Manifesting itself in these two parables, the parable of the mustard seed sown in a field and the parable of the baker who adds leaven into a lump of dough. Uh, The same core theme, the kingdom of God enters into the world in a small, delicate, subtle, tiny, insignificant way, and yet creates uh, a new universe for all of us. And so I want to speak about the shared theme that these parables talk about, that which is small can become universal, but also each of these parables offers a unique ingredient to the discussion of the kingdom. And I'll be talking about that too. So what they share in common and their unique additives. So here's the shared theme. Again, the kingdom comes in smallness, in secrecy, in subtlety, as a mustard seed, as leaven. Jesus is really talking about things that are so small they could be reduced to like powder, things that you wouldn't even see, things that would, uh, that would miss uh, a casual uh, gaze in their direction. Now, I want you to think about the kingdom of God as prophesied in the Old Testament. The kingdom of God is this idea that the, the, the sacred um, plan and health and shalom uh, of God would come into the world in a more demonstrable and clear way at some point. And a lot of the prophets of the Old Testament look forward to this time and expect shock and awe that there would be a time in which a world full of decay and death and hardship and addiction and depression and disease would finally be ended, halted forever, and then replaced entirely with something good and noble and better and holy and healing. And they expected this to be a jarring whiplash, this change. And so many people in Jesus' day expected that the Messiah, the great general of this new nation, this new kingdom, would bring this about through the first century equivalent of an atomic bomb or a great fire that would purge the world of wickedness and vice, or a great king whose face would be bloodied uh, with the blood of his enemies, right? A, a new general, a new uh, a new Spartacus to win the war. Something shocking, something blatant, something clear, something undisputable. And yet when Jesus opens his mouth to speak to the public for the first time, he talks about the kingdom of God as something that has already begun and that is so tiny you might miss it. It's a shock to his audience, no doubt, because he's overturning their expectations he's saying the kingdom of god doesn't come in like clint eastwood right the new sheriff who then shoots the bad sheriff and then takes the bad sheriff's place totally total replacement the bad dies in an instant the good is promoted instead the kingdom of god jesus says is something very small and minuscule that invades something much much larger than itself right So the kingdom of God is a tiny, imperceptible seed that is thrown into a field that is literally billion times larger than the seed itself. And that leaven is thrown into a great big bunch of flour, and you can't see it. You can't perceive it as it's mixed in. It is subsumed uh, within the larger field. And that's something that we need to uh, consider today, that as the kingdom enters into the world, it does so in a way that can hardly be detectable. Um, And this, I think, is a challenging word for us because we look at the world all around us and we see the mayhem And we see the the angry competition, and we see the backbiting, and we see rage, and we see inequality, and we see injustice, and uh, we see... Children that are sold into a sex trade, and we see people that are addicted to uh, narcotics and barbiturates, and we see um, poverty in families that seemingly can't be thrown off, and we see cycles of addiction, and we're wondering where is the kingdom of God in all of this mayhem, putting the brakes on this crazy train? Like, what is happening? What is happening? Uh, And I find, and maybe you do too, that I want to be part of a movement that has evident and clear and immediate traction and success. In fact, when I was first taking a personality profile called the DISC profile, D-I-S-C, it said that um, I'm a person that believes that um, or that deduces that personal success must manifest itself in, and this is what the test said, the exact wording, victory with flair, that I will accept nothing less than that. That is the only evidence of success, like blatant, obvious, unquestionable glory, you know, so it's a pretty high bar. I'm just saying. I've never really quite reached it, which is always why I'm so down about myself. Um, But nevertheless, that's often the, the thing that we want to be associated with, don't we? We want something. We want traction. We want to see some progress in our own lives and in our own world. And if we join a movement, stay with it for a little while, and aren't seeing that traction, that progress, we jump to another movement that seems more likely to compel us in that direction. Why do we want this? Why do we want blatant success? Because at least in part, I think it says something about us or our validity or our intelligence, that we would align ourselves with a winning movement. Uh, But the kingdom of God plays by different rules. The nation of Christ says, no, 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 no. This thing is entering your world subtly. And the world that the kingdom is entering is a massive field. And that little kingdom that is smaller, smaller, Uh, than your fingernail, much smaller, in fact. One one one-hundredth of a fingernail is where the locus of God is. And it's being planted in that field. It's being leavened into that dough. And while you won't be able to see it for a while, you have to wait. um, Because what happens with a seed and what happens with leaven, and this is why Jesus uses organic imagery. He doesn't say the kingdom of God is like a small stone put in a field. He said it's like a seed because he's suggesting that That this thing that I'm doing in the world has not only the capacity, but the destiny to grow, to alter the course of all things. You just have to wait because it will grow. I've given it all the potential that it needs. And so that's sort of the shared theme, smallness, secrecy, folded into the world that will eventually have a grand and fruitful effect. That's the shared theme. But then each of these parables, the parables of mustard seed and uh, the baker, have their own unique voices. Let me mention what those are very quickly. So this is the parable of the mustard seed. Jesus put another parable before them saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds. But when it is grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make its nest in its branches. I want to say that the unique ingredient of this particular parable is the strangeness of the kingdom of God, the oddity of the kingdom of God, the unpredictability of the kingdom of God. Why do I say strangeness? Because to put it very clearly, farmers do not sow mustard seeds in their fields, that's not a thing. Nobody did that. That would be like the equivalent of having one of those um, prized rose gardens in like Better Homes and Gardens magazine. You know, one of those magazines that make you feel terrible about yourself and your whole life. Um, and and somebody owning one of these prized rose gardens and going about sowing dandelions and skunk cabbage in the middle of it. Nobody would do that. The same as with... Uh, Uh, Is with a mustard plant or a tree or a weed and first century horticulturalists hated mustard trees In fact Pliny the younger this Roman historian who also dabbled in uh, the horticultural field said that he defined a mustard tree as a malignant weed he said it is a nine foot plant that you cannot uproot and essentially it's a bully to all other plants around it because it steals their nutrients and their water with a very, very widespread root system and it keeps being, it keeps replanting itself to the point where you just can't get rid of it. Uh, it's a terribly infective weed and plant. And I think what Jesus is saying here by saying there was a farmer, essentially, who plants a mustard seed in his field is something like this. Um, The nation that Jesus represents and embodies is strange, unpredictable, and out of place, it seems. Nobody would expect such an action. I think this point is uh, backed up by the fact that within biblical material, especially when you consider how the Bible describes other kingdoms... Jesus' kingdom doesn't really fit. Here's what I mean. Very often in the Old Testament, particularly in the prophetic literature, the kingdoms of this world are described as grand trees that grow up into the heavens. In Ezekiel 31, Assyria is seen as our gargantuan Babel-like tree that grows all the way up into the heavens and is the strongest tree in the world before God cuts it down. Daniel 4, the same thing. Babylon, a great tree that stretches all the way up into the heavens until God cuts it down. The point is they're impressive mythic trees, like redwood trees that grow up and expand themselves uh, into into the eternity of God. But when Jesus talks about the kingdom of God, he said, no, the kingdom of God is like a weird weed that a farmer plants in his field. He's underscoring the point that it's strange. And this just shows us yet again that Jesus says things and does things that demonstrate that he is a misfit Messiah or a monarch for misfits. Uh, You notice what the things that Jesus said simply don't fit within our world of angry tweets, our world of Instagram glory. He doesn't fit. He's not a competitor with the monarchs of of the earth, Um, right? When he says that he welcomes idiot, frivolous, prodigals home, uh, when he says that that repentant hookers are coming into the kingdom more than clergymen. When he says, don't panic about tomorrow, like don't worry about what's going to happen to your retirement. When he, uh, uh, when he says that if you have somebody in your life who is a recidivist, constantly making the same mistakes, but they're sorry, you should keep forgiving them, even though that's irresponsible. He's a misfit within our world. He clearly hasn't read the book Boundaries because he doesn't seem to have many. He's always touching people that the law said you can't touch, and he's eating food that you weren't supposed to eat, and he's forgiving sinners without the sacrificial system, right? I mean, he doesn't seem to understand the rules of the road. He's this misfit Messiah representing a misfit kingdom, a kingdom of strangeness, of oddities, um, that, that... That can't really dovetail with the system of the world. And I think it's an important point because I have an obsession and maybe you do too of fitting in. I've always wanted to belong. I've always wanted to fit in with the acceptable crowd. My life would be easier and better. And I like it when people think well of me. Um, I think this is true in, in many of our lives. And you'll notice it whenever you engage in what they call personality mirroring, when you're around people that you respect or that you want them to respect you. You'll notice that you start mimicking their phraseology, their voice, their clothing, their posture, their demeanor, because you want to be acceptable to them. And I think we all do this. And we, we see it in high schools, of course, where, um, you know, there are different uh, cliques, and you know, there's the goth click and the nerd click and the theater click. Uh, and you're um, going to align yourself probably with one of them just to survive. Wouldn't it be nice if like those high school like impulses ended at some point? They don't, by the way. Um, we, we've just discovered a more sophisticated way to hide our desperate need to fit in. But Jesus is saying, no, no, no. The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed thrown into a field, a weed, in a field of crops. And uh, I think it's a good word for us to remember that we are aliens and foreigners in this world, and our hunger for fitting in will never really be satisfied because our hearts are restless until they rest in the only one to whom we belong. So that's something about smallness that's represented in both parables. Something about the first parable and strangeness about this mustard seed, this weed being planted in a field. Now the second parable and its unique ingredient. What does it uniquely speak to? I think it uniquely speaks to the kingdom's pervasiveness. This is verse 33. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. Now, I want you to note here that a woman is the main character representing Jesus or God in some sense. And just as a reminder that Jesus had a very, very high place for women and included them in his teachings as symbols and signs for heaven's immediacy and power. And what does this woman do? Takes leaven. What is leaven? Leaven is yeast. Yeast is something like mold. And it causes flour uh, flour to rise. And it makes flour into something that it couldn't be otherwise. It makes a simple flour with some other ingredients into bread. And this woman is evidently having a very big baking day because she takes three measures of flour. That's roughly 150 cups of flour. A lot. Uh, making about 70 loaves of bread, right? And the, the point is that this is a lot of flour. A lot of flour. And yeast can, is nearly, at that level, indistinguishable from the flour itself. But she's working it into the dough. Notice the text says she hid it in the dough. So it's imperceptible, hid it in the dough. Um, and this is important. She's folding it in. So leaven doesn't do anything if it's like on, it's in a packet in your spice rack. Instead, she opens it up, spreads it in the dough, and then starts folding it in, hiding it in there. But the result of this hiddenness, this yeast, is that it pervades the flour and makes it into something that it couldn't be otherwise, and something good, something noble, something sustaining and filling. That's what it is. Um. Now what's fascinating to me is that the notion of pervasiveness that the yeast of the kingdom though very subtle over time as it's worked into the lump has a glorious effect that affects every single bite of that future bread everything is affected by this pervasive kingdom. Now, what's interesting is Jesus usually uses the the imagery of yeast negatively. He says, watch out for the yeast or the influence of the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Herodians, or the religious and the political elites of the time. Watch out for them. But here Jesus is saying there's another yeast at play. There's another yeast at work in the world. And it's the yeast of the kingdom, the pervasive influence of the kingdom of God within our current larger sphere. And all of that larger sphere, though it seems intimidating and daunting and much larger than the kingdom, will be affected by that same kingdom. In fact, not one square inch of it will go unaffected by the kingdom of God. I was uh, speaking recently with a young man who had a lot of inquisitive um, uh, things to say and questions to offer about Christianity, and and he was saying and talk, kind of talking out loud, saying, "I wonder where this kingdom is." You know, where is Christianity in light of the decline of the church in the United States, especially in Europe and the Western world? Why don't we see things like that were occurring in the Book of Acts, where you know dead people are being raised and demons are being cast out and uh, people are being healed? But then as he was asking questions, he was also kind of answering himself at the same time, but he was saying, but at the same time, he said, even in the midst of our current collapse and catastrophe within our society, most of us are not killing each other. He said, it's a miracle that our competitive and angry drives are not causing us to go out into the street and burn down Grove City and create a riot wherever we go. He said, it's amazing that we still assume that we ought to want, even if we're not personally formed in this way, but we ought to want justice, compassion, forgiveness, that there is a truth that we all have to abide to, that my truth is only so good as it aligns with the truth, that we're all leaning into something and we really believe that other people matter. Their voices matter, and we need to have compassion on them even if we disagree with them. And he said, that has to be some effect of the kingdom of God. Why would we want it otherwise? And I think he's right. You may know that there's an old Hindu proverb that goes something like this. The tears of strangers are mostly water. Meaning, care for you, care for your own. But people outside your circle don't matter as much, nor to their feelings. We don't have that assumption for the most part, at least we, we think we ought not to. Instead, we, should, we say we are our brothers and sisters keepers right here and right now. And that's the influence of, of the kingdom of God. Um, that's the evidence of the pervading kingdom. And remember, this pervading kingdom and its king has declared that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Because even the powers of hell itself will be pervaded by the announcement that there is a higher Lord, uh, a better Messiah. So that's something about this unique parable, the pervasiveness of the yeast as it's folded into the dough. So Jesus taught many, many things that surprise us about his everlasting nation. And chief among them is the nation's smallness as it enters the world. And I want to invite you to do something daring, really, which is to love kingdom smallness, not to resent it, but to love kingdom smallness. We often want shock and awe. I I remember as a young man reading the fact that Martin Luther said, if I only pray three hours a day, I'm not in a good place. I need to pray more than three hours a day. And I I gave that my best shot for two days. It didn't work very well. Uh, Instead, I burned myself out. And then I hated myself for not being able to be a deeply spiritual and and, uh, religiously oriented person. Uh, Instead, what I should have done is realize that Jesus said something about he who is faithful in little things will be faithful in big things. But to look for the smallness of the kingdom, for the little things, um, to have eyes to see the mustard tree growing, the dough slowly rising. In other words, to notice hints of the incoming nation of God. I was speaking with one of you recently who was telling me um, about a, a daughter Uh, who uh, was going through this very stern and fierce atheistic phase, right? And a lot of people go through this, by the way. They have to, like, deal with their past in some way, and so what they do is torch it, right? So people become very, very vehement atheists. But there was a change, an alteration in her, in which uh, she began to say, well, maybe. In other words, regarding Jesus, maybe. Now, maybe is better than absolutely not. That maybe is a kingdom maybe. It suggests that there is something at work, is something growing, that is slowly prying open a stony heart. Look for the smallness of the kingdom. So whenever you have, if you're a fearful person, and you have like a moment of courage, and you say something daring to your oppressive wife or husband, or or your boss or a professor, or a friend group that just can't handle some aspect of of righteousness and you stand up for it and you have a little bit of courage, see that as kingdom courage. And whenever you um, have somebody in your life that you absolutely despise because they battered your heart black and blue, but you have this moment of clemency for that person or understanding for that person, see that as kingdom clemency and understanding. Whenever you have 30 seconds and you actually pray for 30 seconds, don't hate yourself for not praying for three hours. Instead, see those 30 seconds as a kingdom 30 seconds where you actually gave your heart and mind over to God just for a minute. And, and notice how God reframes the work of your life just because of that time. In other words, don't hate it whenever you don't have victory with flair. Instead, notice where God is at work because that's all it takes, right? Faith the size of a mustard seed. Leaven that is folded into dough. That's all it takes. The butterfly effect of the kingdom of God uh, can uh, create earthquakes and uh, can create um, massive, massive changes. So, So look for the smallness of the kingdom of God. Yes, it is small at first. In fact, at one point, the kingdom of God was localized and reduced to one man. One sweat-soaked, blood-drenched, coughing, antagonized man who suffocated to death on a Roman cross. The kingdom of God was reduced to that one place. And Jesus even predicted this earlier in his life. He said, You know, there is a seed that has to fall to the ground and die before it can yield a harvest. Well, that very day, that dark day on the cross, it seemed like the kingdom of God was entirely snuffed out. But Jesus recovered. And because of his recovery, he's causing you, wherever you are at this moment, to recover as well. That's the kingdom effect. Whenever you stare in the mirror today, you are staring at the effect of the kingdom of God. You are staring at the beloved of God. So Jesus, I believe would say to you in this moment, just wait and see, wait and see, because you can't always detect it, but it is occurring. The kingdom of God is growing like a root system under your aching feet and the best is yet to come. You will have a stomach filled with the bread of heaven and you will sit under the shade of the tree of life. Amen. Free at last, they took your life, they could not.